I say when something, you know, has this kind of global appeal, you don't question it, you don't break it down, you don't analyze why, you simply say, thank goodness we have this in our lives. Well, this, this is in a way, it's like a tremendous flashback, but it's also uh, a very contemporary cultural phenomenon in terms of the event that The Force Awakens has created. This reminds me of the event that happened in 1977 in May when the first Star Wars came out. And, uh, I, you know, and I, I'm like, it, it, ha it has not happened since 77, so this is uh, a, a night we'll never forget. Every generation has fallen in love with the Star Wars characters, and J.J.'s movie reignites the, this phenomenon that will just continue, you know, beyond uh, this generation into future generations. It's never going to stop. Hello, Star Wars fans and move milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 131 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. And yep, later we are talking about the bizarre, complicated, long-lasting, continuing influence of Steven Spielberg on every aspect of Star Wars. If George Lucas was the announcer in Phantom Menace in the pod race, Steven Spielberg would be his other head. <laughs> It's true. They've been joined at the neck since, what, 1972, three, right? Forever. Best friends, rivals, lovers. They've done it all. <laughs> Beard growing competitions. They probably had it. We're going to be getting to that later. But first, we got to go over some news. Episode nine, nine time. You can't get away. Episode nine. It's heating up. The bacon's on top of the stove. And we're almost getting ready for that beautiful episode nine breakfast. There's some grease uh, splashing us a little bit. A couple drops of grease keep us interested. What do we got? We got this potentially real news, but none of it's been confirmed yet. No, not. It's, yeah, it's not official yet. It's StarWars.com has been pretty quiet on the matter. But what was it? Variety a couple weeks ago was saying that Carrie Russell 
may have been cast or was about to be cast or is in negotiations to be in episode nine, which makes sense. She was the star of Felicity, which was a J.J. Abrams show. She was briefly in Mission Impossible 3, which he directed. And she's potentially going to play everybody's mom, right? (laughs) She might be Ray's mom. She might be Finn's mom. She might be Poe's mom. She might be Rose's mom. She might be Maz's mom. Might be Hux's mom. I'm really hoping for Hux's mom. Maybe she's Snoke's mom. Could be Snoke's mom. She could be Mrs. Snoke. Ooh. Oh, yeah. We haven't heard about Mrs. Snoke. Lady Snoke. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do to my husband? (laughs) I want revenge. (laughs) He was so handsome. (laughs) J.J. Abrams is fixing all the wrongs. You wanted... Important parents, well, we got Snoke's wife. <laughs> Maybe they have a baby. It's baby Snoke. Yeah, it could be Snoke's daughter. Oh, there you go. Killed my daddy. Now I'm going to kill you. Scoops. <laughs> we got the scoops. So Variety was saying though that it's like an action-focused role or something like that. So my first thought was she's she seems like she could be like somebody coming into the new rebel alliance that would make sense but part of me then was like well maybe she's first order but do you really see them introducing a whole lot of new first order characters at this point no because we got kylo we got hux there's already some some drama there i mean maybe i mean she's could be the new kennedy (laughs) just shows up to sweep everyone off their feet and then explode i don't know but yeah, maybe she's a resistance. I mean, all the uh, resistance leaders are have either died on screen or off screen, other than, uh, I can't ever remember her name. Commander D- Darcy. I hope she's back. Was she, was she even on the Falcon? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was on the Falcon at the end. Oh, I hope she's back. But that's the thing. Like, I don't know if whoever is still in the Falcon in those last shots of Last Jedi is a good gauge on who's still alive because like you think of all those like especially the deleted scenes in return of the jedi where they had like rebel troops everywhere in the falcon like hanging from the rafters and in every little part you could imagine in that ship right because there could be people in the gun turrets and we just saw solo like maybe general emmett's uh taking a nap in the bed (laughs) (laughs) or sleeping in the closet who's flying the falcon at the end of last jedi Chewie's hanging out, giving out hugs to everybody, talking to C-3PO. <laughs> so somebody's flying the ship, and we don't know who that is. That's a really good question, yeah. Why aren't people talking about that? <laughs> who, who's flying the Falcon? There's a lot of people that could still be around in Episode Nine, But yeah, Carrie Russell, who's she going to be? I don't know. Mysteries. So in other Episode Nine casting news... What I think this one was Hollywood Hollywood Reporter, or maybe it was Variety. They're practically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> they were reporting that it's a done deal that Billy D. Williams is back as Lando. I hope it's true. It makes sense. What was it? Like a month or so ago, Fanthatrax was talking about it was a rumor, and now Hollywood Reporter is saying it's pretty much a done deal. It'd be more weird at this point if it wasn't happening. They don't really have a good excuse not to have him at this point. So maybe we'll find out soon that Dennis Lawson will be back. He's finally come to his senses. You know, though, it's like we were saying last week, though. Like, 
you can't go into this expecting it to be Lando Calrissian, the motion picture. Like the movies aren't really his story. And if it is just kind of like a glorified cameo by Lando, will people kind of get grumpy about that? Yeah, I'm sure they will. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. There'll be plenty of people who are grumpy, but yeah, the movies are not about the old characters. And if this is the third one in the trilogy, it really needs to be about the new characters. So yeah, I mean, it's a star Wars movie. He'll probably just be a quick cameo, but that's kind of how it goes. It would be really cool, especially thinking that this is the final film, like we were saying, not just in the sequel trilogy, but of all nine movies. And especially after Solo, if the Falcon does end up with Lando at the end of this story, kind of like, well, the Falcon used to be his and now it's his again. I'm down for that. Ray can build her own cool ship. I imagine Ray being like Neo in Matrix Reloaded, just <laughs> flying around like, what? Somebody's in trouble, and she just takes off into the air. She can just surround herself in, in rocks and fly through space. <laughs> Sign me up. You don't, you know, she's so powerful, you don't even see her going anywhere. She just like, whoop, 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 shows up places. Like, right, how'd you get here? And she's just like, I'm the last Jedi. So I saw what Luke did. It was pretty cool, but I figured out something cooler. I said to Luke, I was like, that's all you got? That's the best you can do? Maybe she'll just use the force to like have like a hoverboard. No one's done that yet, have they? Like a, a Jedi surfboard is doing cool tricks. We can dream. So we need to talk about some very serious episode nine news. The matter of Beard Watch. There's some very serious things going on with episode nine and beards. Mark Hamill posted a picture on his social media that he got some kind of goofy thing from Sideshow Toys. I don't even know what it is. I think it's about the Joker or something. Yeah, it was a a Joker cane or something. The most important thing is that he shaved off his beard. Of course means he's not going to be in episode nine, so we should start getting angry now. (laughs) Here was my first thought though and it wasn't that he's going to come back as the idealized force ghost without a beard or whatever goofball material people were talking about online sometimes to grow the right beard you got to shave existing beard you got to start over from scratch yeah i believe it this picture was posted at like what july 8th or 9th or something if he is going to be in the movie he's going to be a force ghost probably the extent of something like what yoda was in the last jedi He probably knows what day he's got to start filming and how long it takes him to achieve the right beard length. Well, and the other option is we know we all know some of the best beards in Star Wars are the fake beards. Very true. Elevator Obi-Wan, General Maydeen, Qui-Gon at times. They want Luke to look the best as a ghost. They probably still have uh, Ewan's beard somewhere. He can just, like, have Obi-Wan's beard. It's even more uh, Force ghosty. <laughs> they'll, they'll give him all the beards, all on top of each other. He'll have Qui-Gon's beard with Ewan McGregor's beard over it, and then General Maydean's beard on top, just for good measure. Because it's, it's the climax of all nine films, so it's the climax of all the beards at this point. That's what J.J. was talking about, where it's like he's got to bring all three trilogies together. All three beard trilogies. And then Kylo will show up and be like, that belongs to me. 
<laughs> that beard it belongs to me. Rips the beard off of his face, puts it on his face. Oh. <laughs> so speaking of Adam Driver, he was spotted filming a movie somewhere where he's playing like a cop or something. But Adam Driver has no beard. Rumors were not true. Bearded Kylo Ren, unless fake Kylo Ren beard. Well, they haven't started filming yet, so he can still. He, I'm sure Adam Driver can grow like a 12 inch long beard in a week. He can probably stare at himself in a mirror. I must grow a beard, and it just. Yeah, he just has to water it with whiskey. Unless you know Ben Solo is drawing his beard on with his calligraphy set. Oh. So here's here's the real important question. How is uh does Chewbacca still have his beard? And I mean that's an interesting question too because Neil Scanlon and his creature department at this point with 9, what Chewbacca do you use? Because they perfected kind of Chewbacca in Solo and that Solo Chewbacca was different than the last Jedi Chewbacca. So now with episode 9, what is that Chewbacca? Well, enough time passed for them to finally give him a little bit of gray. Are they going to age him up a little bit? Or are they going to keep him still so useful, youthful and glowing? He's a young Wookiee, but he's had a hard life. He has, especially lately. It's been a tough time. He has the, the death of uh, General Organa finally gets, gets a little gray streak. Or maybe he saw a picture of Master Codebreaker. And he's like, brr, brr. Goes to the barber with a photo of Master Codebreaker. <laughs> but through all of this, no one is checking up on if Dom Hall Gleason has his sideburns. That's the real key that filming is about to begin. How are those sideburns looking? Mm -hmm. Well, if we go the progression from one to two, right, he should have full on uh, hot callus mutton chops by uh, episode nine. Oh, could you even imagine? It'd be like a red Wolverine. You know, and that's like the whole Hux joke in episode nine. Every time he go tries to be really serious and tell people what's going on, everyone just looks at him and starts laughing. What is so funny? Yeah, he can he can grow the mustache in between too. Go full on. It's like a big crazy handlebar mustache. It's a new look. Maybe Kyle will do the mustache. We haven't had a uh, mustache Sith Lord yet. <laughs> Now's the time. He had to take that ridiculous mask off, so now he's got to grow a ridiculous mustache to make up for it. How many months away are we? Too many months. <laughs> Indy, over here. Indiana Jones, at your service, Toad. <laughs> Indiana Jones and other action figures new from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection, each sold separately. Watch him, Kyber, swordsman. Yeah, watch my swing. Yikes! All downhill from here, swordsman. You'll be sorry, Jones. Tricky again, Toad. Indiana Jones, Toad, and Cairo swordsman action figures, each sold separately from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection, new from Kenner. So between the time of February 21st and February 27th of 1968, there was a retrospective of USC student films at the Fairfax Theater in Los Angeles. And there was works by people like Matthew Robbins and John Milius and Hal Barwood. And there was 
a short film called THX 1138-4EB by the young George Lucas. And in the program, that short was described as an exercise in spatial calligraphy. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> For, foreshadowing young Ben Solo's favorite hobby. <laughs> Which I, when I read that, I wondered if uh, Ben Solo's uh, calligraphy hobby was, uh, was a shout out to the old description of THX 11384EB. It probably was. So THX at this festival was a huge success. It was a standout in the program. And because of that, 4EB was selected to show at a festival the best work from students uh, from USC and UCLA at Royce Hall in Los Angeles. In the theater was a very young Steven Spielberg. And he was so impressed with Lucas's film. What, what was the quote that Spielberg was saying about it? So according to uh, Lucas's biography by Brian J. Jones, um, Spielberg's first impression, he says, my first impression was I hate you laughing. I hate that guy, man. He's so much better than I am. Spielberg went backstage afterwards where he found George Lucas, who was hanging out with Francis Coppola, and he introduced himself. But there's differing stories on how that all went down. Right. It's funny that these two guys basically end up becoming best friends for the rest of their life because according to Spielberg when they met Spielberg was like George was a really friendly guy he said hey how are you they shook hands and became friends from that moment on the friendship actually began with a handshake um, but then when they asked Lucas about it he's like I think I may have met him there were a lot of people afterwards but if we met it was definitely just a handshake hi how are you it's hard to you know make an impression on that cool cucumber George Lucas or whatever I meet a lot of people there may have been Hershey bars backstage. I'm so hopped up on Hershey bars. I can't, I don't even know where I am. My movie's doing great. THX 1384EB all night long. It's a calligraphy party. One thing with the calligraphy party is a calligraphy party don't stop. Steven Spielberger, get that. So Spielberg was born in 46. Lucas was born in 44. Both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were from very suburban upbringings, post-war kids, crazy about movies, crazy about adventure serials. And, you know, you'd think like with everything you know about Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, you wouldn't think that these two guys would even get along because, you know, Spielberg always seems like very high energy, especially when he was younger. And we know George Lucas, you know, <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever said that George Lucas is high energy. Unless there's gumballs. Out of my way. <laughs> but I think that, you know, they were both had a deep, deep, deep love of film. And I think they both were just weirdo dudes that hit it off and could talk about movies. They were both hungry to make their movies in at the time, right? There was hard to break into Hollywood. So they kind of both had, they had a shared dream of kind of making it in the film industry and telling their stories. Lucas goes off and does American graffiti. Spielberg goes off and does jaws. And Lucas used, um, in 1974, used the profits from American graffiti to buy a large Victorian house in California that he named the Parkway. And this is kind of like the, the prototype for Skywalker Ranch, where it was like a headquarters for Lucasfilm, and he offered space to folks like Hal Barwood and Philip Kaufman and Matthew Robbins, Walter Murch, 
Barwood and Robbins brought in Steven Spielberg because they had just written Sugarland Express, which Spielberg directed. And kind of around this time, they started hanging out again more frequently, right? Spielberg and Lucas. Yeah, it sounds like they were all hanging out at Robbins' house because Lucas was basically staying there and Spielberg would come over every night. Uh, the quote is, uh, they'd be around the kitchen table discussing their script uh, and we'd have dinner, talk, and hang out. That's where we really got to know each other. So just eating food and talking about movies. Any Hershey bars? <laughs> yeah. They were like making ramen noodles and Lucas is just eating the flavor packets. Real weird dude. He's pouring the ramen flavor into bottles of Coke. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta mix it up a little bit, Steve. Yeah, I can eat it, drink it once. More time to think about my tone poems. So then in 75, Lucas kept his office at Universal, kind of away from Fox. He was kind of starting to get Star Wars in development. And this office also was pretty close to Spielberg's office on the Universal lot. And the two of them got to talking, and around this time in 75, when Lucas was prepping Star Wars, was when famously Spielberg first recommended that guy Johnny Williams. He's the guy you got to get to score your space movie. Yeah, supposedly he does a pretty good job. If you go specifically with the influence of Spielberg onto Star Wars, as far as we know, this is the first time Spielberg had direct influence on the final product of Star Wars. And a pretty big influence, too. <laughs> Probably, yeah, if, with, with how much they've been friends over the years and, and every little crossover they've had. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> the big one that still, to this day, and in the end of next year, Episode 9, we're going to get another John Williams. So, yeah, 40 years of that influence. And even beyond, like, whoever scores Ryan Johnson's trilogy, whatever the heck the Game of Thrones guys are doing, everyone's always going to be living in the shadow of what John Williams did. And they'll forever be compared to what John Williams did, because John Williams is the the blood in the, the Star Wars body, keeping the whole machine going. Right. You can do a transfusion, but it's got to be the same blood type. So July of 76, filming is done in the UK for Star Wars. And an extremely exhausted George Lucas goes to visit Steven Spielberg, who's filming Close Encounters, and I believe what's in Alabama. According to Rinsler's uh, Making of Star Wars book, Lucas has, he lost his voice. He had the rebelling crew, an inadequate budget. Lucas is in horrible shape. I can only imagine George Lucas losing his voice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg's like, how you doing, George? What's happening, George? Want to play Asteroids? Want to be... look at this cartoon? <laughs> so with whatever voice he has, George Lucas is telling Steven Spielberg how the movie's going to be a horrible failure. It's going to ruin his career. He's looking at the sets that Spielberg has for Close Encounters, and he says, oh, my God, your movie is going to be so much more successful than Star Wars. This is going to be the biggest hit of all time. I can't believe this set. I can't believe what you're getting. Oh, my goodness. And Spielberg, according to said, all right, I'll tell you what. I'll trade some points with you. You want to trade points? I'll give you 2.5% of Star Wars if you give me 2.5% of Close Encounters. So they make this gamble. They do it. And then what, like 
how much money has Spielberg gotten from this bet? Yeah, it sounds like he, he's made over forty million over the years, <laughs> at least from that bet. So he could just retire from making movies and just live off his Star Wars money. Lucas is completely overwhelmed, and then what doesn't he offer Spielberg like to work second unit or something? Yeah, so Star Wars was behind. Um, he had to split production between several units, and Spielberg basically offered to help out shooting one of the second units. But Spielberg says George wouldn't let me because Spielberg was admiring and jealous of his style, his proximity to audiences, but he did not want my fingerprints anywhere around Star Wars. So at that time, they were both, I guess, trying to keep their own touch on their movies, and they weren't quite ready to collaborate, at least to that level, to give Spielberg some control. It's an interesting development on that in about another uh, 30 years or something. (laughs) (laughs) How, How opinions change. So then October 1976, Lucas has his rough cut of the Star Wars. It's got no music yet, no sound effects. Special effects are barely done. There's still the the dogfight World War II footage in for like the trench run. And he shows it to a bunch of his friends, Hal Barwood again, Brian De Palma, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. Milius is there, Matthew Robbins, and of course, Steven Spielberg. And famously is... Everyone knows what this story, everyone pretty much hated it, except for Spielberg. Marsha was there, too, and supposedly started crying after she saw it. (laughs) Maybe it was in rough shape. (laughs) It was not a clique, not a brat pack, nothing that people claim we were. We're just a bunch of filmmakers that weren't afraid to show our rough cuts to each other, and we weren't afraid of that kind of criticism. We weren't afraid of... George Lucas or Brian De Palma. I'll never forget the day Brian De Palma and I saw the rough cut of Star Wars. And it was only about six of us in the room. And it was the very first time George had ever showed the picture to anybody and chose six of us to show it to. Well, Brian went off the deep end. Wes, makes no sense. Nonsense. What's this all about? And, and, and through all of the contention of that wild evening where Brian liked the movie but thought it was a, sort of mixed up. It wasn't really mixed up. It just didn't have 89% of the special effects in it. Who could possibly make heads or tails meet on, a, on, on Star Wars without all those, you know, 500 effect shots? But um, Brian, Brian's contention did lead to George inventing the now very famous forward, like the old serials that crawled up the screen, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, that came out of that rough cut screen. And without that kind of sort of selfless thinking where the ego is not, in, you, know, you know, leading you around by your nostrils, but you're open to pain and to embarrassment and to ridicule. And by being open to that with peers that know what it's like to make a movie who have made movies so you can respect their word, their critique, so to speak. So then finally, uh, March of 77, Lucas is in the UK with John Williams doing the score. And like we talked about in our John Williams episode last year, a very excited George Lucas is calling Spielberg while the live scoring sessions are going on over the phone. Like, <laughs> Can you believe this? Listen to this. I'm so happy. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steven Spielberg, for John Williams. <laughs> He's the best. It sounds so good. 
he basically let him listen to a like a half hour of the score over the phone. He probably should have called Marsha too. Maybe he did. You can stop crying. All gonna be okay. Uh, but that whole whole uh, event was interesting because at the same time Spielberg was just about to work with Williams on the score to Close Encounters. So it sounds like Spielberg, uh, as excited as Lucas was, Spielberg was somewhat crushed by that because he felt like Williams gave all the best stuff to Lucas. And it sounds like they kind of at at that point reworked their discussions of Close Encounters to kind of make it as far and as different as Star Wars as they could. That's fascinating. I wonder like what the pre-Star Wars version of the Close Encounters score would have been like because you think of William's score for Close Encounters and all anyone ever thinks of is what was the rest of the score originally like I wonder maybe they were talking about doing more kind of a classical classic Hollywood score and after that yeah they kind of went as modern more of a modern classical sound then late May 1977 as everyone knows that's the Famous vacation in Maui, where again, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz and Marsha and Spielberg and his then-girlfriend, Amy Irving, were all in Hawaii there just trying to chill out. And they, they dreamed up the whole idea for Indiana Jones. Spielberg finally gets back to the States after their little their trip to Maui, and he goes to see Star Wars in a movie theater. He says, this is in uh, Rinsler's Making a Book. I couldn't believe it. There were lines around the block. I mean, it was the biggest thing that ever happened. I couldn't even fathom it. When I finally got to see him, it was like a transformation had taken place. I had never experienced special effects that were so real. I was dazzled. It was amazing. It was amazing and depressing at the same time. I was in post-production on Close Encounters, and I'd just come back from Hawaii because I wanted to get away from all that. When I got back to the States and saw Star Wars, I thought my movie just paled in comparison. I was depressed for about two weeks. I didn't even want to release my movie the same year as Star Wars, but Columbia was falling apart and I had to cooperate, and it did great. But Star Wars was the real star of 1977. So again, it's kind of like the, the what you, what we were saying with the score. It's kind of like they, they had two giant movies coming out that same year, and even though they're good friends and... They were kind of a little bit of a competition between the two of them. Yeah, they definitely had a, a friendly rivalry going on. But Steven won the bet. <laughs> George Lucas got like, what, $10,000 from Close Encounters, maybe? I got my rocket ship of bubble gum. That's, that's Close Encounters money right there. He, he, he had to pay for half of the big chair himself. But So December of 79, they're ramping up production on their first real collaboration together, Rares of the Lost Ark. And Steven Spielberg is looking for someone to fill the job of associate to the director. And he happens to remember someone who was working with John Milius on 1941. And that person is Kathleen Kennedy. So he goes into John Milius's office, finds Kathy Kennedy, drops the script for Raiders down in front of her and says, here, read this, but you can't tell anyone about it. I want you to be my associate to the director on this movie. She reads the script, says she wants to do it, thought it was great. And whatever happened to that Kathleen Kennedy? She might be going places. <laughs> she goes on to produce E.T., Poltergeist, Gremlins, Temple of Doom, Goonies, Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, and she'll come into our story again in a little bit. But um, So also around this time, they need somebody to punch up the script for Rares of the Lost Ark. 
And Steven Spielberg just happens to remember this guy that wrote this movie, Continental Divide, that Spielberg was hired to produce. This Continental Divide screenplay was from 77, and that person happens to be Lawrence Kasdan. So they bring in Lawrence Kasdan, and they like what he does with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And for a little while, he's working on drafts for Raiders and Empire at the same time. Kasdan also goes on to, as we know, be a bit of an important figure in the history of Star Wars. A little bit. So then in 1980, word gets out that someone finds a bunch of Steven Spielberg's old films, his Super 8 movies as a kid, somewhere in a basement, I think in Arizona. They contact his office, and I think it was Kathy Kennedy, says, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you come down here, bring them? So they drop off his student films. Spielberg's like elated because he's like, oh, I got my old movies back. And at this time, they had read an article in the L.A. Times about two kids, two kids that just won a film award. And these two kids happened to be 15-year-old Jeff Abrams and Matt Reeves. So young Jeff Abrams and Matt Reeves work on cleaning up Spielberg's old Super 8 movies. And we'll hear more about this uh, Jeff Abrams character as the story goes on. He sounds familiar. So Return of the Jedi is filming, and Spielberg is there throwing a big party for the ILM crews that worked on Poltergeist and E.T. And while he's there, there he drops in and he's like, I'll go check out what they're doing with the Star Wars movie. And they're filming the speeder bikes chase in that Richard Marquand supposedly offers Spielberg. He's like, I would, you know, why don't you step in and direct this? And Spielberg says, no, 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 I don't need to film it. He probably didn't want to get yelled at by Lucas. <laughs> what are you doing? Mar- Marquand didn't know that Spielberg's not allowed to touch any of this stuff. Gotta keep his greasy fingers off. Yeah. But also around that time in 1982, Spielberg puts a bunch of Star Wars references in E.T., you know, aside from the fact that E.T. is a Jedi, which we all know, go back, the E.T. is a Jedi episode, the best episode we've ever done. Yeah, and we even asked, I asked E.T. when I was in Orlando, and he told me he was a Jedi, so can't argue with that. <laughs> proof. Yeah. P-R-O-O-F. Proof. So Return of the Jedi finally comes out, and George Lucas is burned out. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm retired. His quote is in uh, Rinsler's Making of Return of the Jedi book, I don't want to have to devote the same kind of time and energy, the creative impetus that I had for the last three. He's talking about making more Star Wars movies after Return of the Jedi. But there are people around who can do it, and Steve Spielberg has expressed an interest. He's a person who can run around in the world as well as I could, even better. And I think I would enjoy it as much if I had done it myself. And I think the audience would enjoy it as much if I'd done it myself. And I think there's the possibility that there are other Steven Spielbergs out there somewhere. I feel like we've read that quote before, but I feel like it's worth repeating because basically Lucas is spelling out there in 1983 what's going on right now. It was inevitable. So then after that time, they go on and they do Temple of Doom together. They do Last Crusade together. They hang out all the time. They might have gone on some double dates or something after the whole Marsha thing ended. I don't know. But then Lucas goes back to his his true love of Star Wars and starts on the 
prequel trilogy. And of course, who is he going to bring to check out what he's working on? Yeah, his old buddy Steve Spielberg. There's the famous part in the beginning documentary when they're wandering around Theed City and they go and check out a battle droid and the arm falls off. And one of my favorite Spielberg quotes is, it's like a dango weed. (laughs) And then he puts it on, tries to put it on upside down, I think, right? Luke, it's like, no, it goes on like this. I know battle droids. I came up with all this thing. It's just one of our battle droids, actually. Oh, this, this this is the new stormtrooper. Oh, this man. is our new stormtrooper. But in a way, he's the old model, replaced by Star Wars being the new stormtrooper. Yeah, because what you don't realize is that these guys really are not very efficient. They, uh, these things, you know, Jedi cut them down like they're butter, and they really are pretty useless. Yeah, pretty useless with these old dangle weed here. Yeah, so, uh, no, that's the Oh, sorry. You know, these droids, they can't... Get the physiology right. There we go. And so what happens in the end is they all join forces and everything, and the Goongas battle the droids in this huge kind of war and peace battle. Uh-huh. Like, literally war and peace. I mean, right. It's huge. You know, 10,000 troops on either on both side. Both sides coming at each yeah, other. Coming at each other. That's great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. It's 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 going to be But, you know, that clip, though, they're like two kids that would be wandering around the Phantom Menace set. It's probably the only time in the beginning documentary that you see Lucas kind of genuinely excited about the whole idea of making episode one. He's just having a good time with his buddy talking about what he's making and they're just having a good time. There's no pressure. He's just hanging out with his buddy. I'm going to have a whole army of Baldroids versus a whole army of Goongans. Can you even imagine <laughs> such a thing so awesome, Steve? And Spielberg's just like, I can't. I want to see it. I want to see it now. Liam Neeson playing Qui-Gon Jinn had come off playing Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List. And would we be graced with the power and majesty of Qui-Gon Jinn if Spielberg didn't already work with him in Schindler's List? I don't know. Who else could have played Qui-Gon Jinn? I don't know. Joe Piscopo? Maybe. Qui-Gon Joe? (laughs) Qui-Gon Joe Piscopo? Could have been. We were this close. We can thank Steven Spielberg for Qui-Gon Jinn. (laughs) So weirdly, like Attack of the Clones, there's not a whole lot of connection, except that Spielberg was insanely busy during that time where he was making AI and Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can all right around that time. He was busy. But it still seems like they were hanging out because with uh, AI, right, Spielberg started to kind of get... Actually, really, with both of with AI and Minority Report, he was kind of getting into the sci-fi CG stuff more so than uh, than what he'd done in the past, other than the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Yeah, and I think it was in AI with like when uh, Rouge City was the first time he was using like completely 360 digital sets, which is something that Lucas really got going kind of right around the time of um, in the prequels. Yeah, they did it a little bit in Phantom Menace, a little bit more in Clones, and then a lot of bit in Revenge of the Sith. Which bringing us to Revenge of the Sith, this is the biggest Steven Spielberg fingerprint in all of Star Wars, where Lucas obviously doesn't care about Spielberg getting his fingers, get those dirty fingers out of my movie. At this point, Spielberg's all over Sith. Either Lucas is just tired or he, in his mind, it's the last one. So if he wants to let his buddy play around in in his toy box, this is the time to do it. But really, I think for years, we kind of knew that Spielberg helped out with the 
Mustafar stuff, but only later did we find out he kind of had a lot of input on a bunch of the stuff in the movie. The biggest one being the uh, Grievous Anakin wheel bike chase, which in the Blu-ray set from a few years ago, there is an animatic that Spielberg was basically in charge of. He wanted to learn how the digital animatic stuff worked. And he, I guess, just went to town with that team. And it is ridiculous. (laughs) I hadn't watched it in a long time. It's like 20 minutes long, I think. It's the most over-the-top thing. I almost feel like Spielberg was just trying to get Lucas to yell at him, maybe. Some of the bits that end up in the movie, but there's like the bogas like climbing upside down and Obi-Wan's hanging off of it. There's this big action scene where they're on like a giant windmill thing and Grievous is like spinning the blades of the windmill with his wheel bike. There's tons of parts where they're just like racing down in between the two sides of the battle. So there's battle droids on one side and there's clone troopers on the other side and they're shooting at each other and Grievous and uh, Obi-Wan are racing in between them. There's parts of Grievous like driving through battle droids and clone troopers. There's a part where Grievous is throwing chunks of clone troopers at Obi-Wan with the wheels from the wheel bike. It's just, it's non-step nonsense. All that remind it's it you know and it sounds like it you know for folks that saw Ready Player One, <laughs> it sounds like the the car chase at the beginning of Ready Player One. It sounds like some of the ludicrous I call it mousetrap action that was in Tintin, where it's just like what even is happening here? Like over the top on top of over the top. That was yeah. We can thank Lucas for that. That was the beginning of all that, and the end of it is if you thought it was cool or maybe too much that Obi-Wan shoots Grievous in the gut sack in the movie, in this version, with his bare hands, Obi-Wan rips Grievous's chest open, pulls out his gut sack, throws it, and then goes over and shoots his gut sack after he rips it out of Grievous's chest. So uncivilized. <laughs> so if you haven't watched it in a while or you never watched it, get your Blu-ray set out and watch uh, yeah, the Utapal Grievous chase directed by Steven Spielberg and uh, make sure you're sitting down. It's interesting in the making of um, Revenge of the Sith book when Lucas had his first meeting with the art department and he... Well, if Lucas first drops off his first draft of the Revenge of the Sith script and he's talking to the art department and then he like leaves the meeting and he's like, well, I'm going to go and uh, next week I'm bringing in a guest director so I don't have to do this anymore. It's like his quote. And like everyone's like, what? Guest director? Who is it? And then later they find out that the guest director is Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg was pretty involved in a lot of the major those major sequences in Sith. He he would do art department meetings and you know, he was doing post production with Ben Burt. Yeah, it sounds like one of the things to talk about is he was the one who kind of pushed for some of the kind of clever death scenes with the Jedi where they kind of hide them getting murdered a little bit, like where the camera pans up on Ayla and the and she kind of gets obscured by the leaf. Like that was a suggestion from Spielberg. Seems like, yeah, he actually had his fingers all over the place. I'm tired. I haven't slept since Radio Land Murders. If you need me, I'm taking a nap. Steve, you do it.
But once you know what you want, getting it is not that hard. It just takes time if you really want to stick to it. If you have a very clear cut, that's why I'm so in love with the Disney animators. Why I think animation is is the father of of you know you know cinema, live action cinema, because they have to have in their mind a clear picture of how a chipmunk rolls over in the snow. They got to know what each side of that chipmunk looks like, and they don't build chipmunks and roll them over in fake snow. They have to use their imaginations and paint these things 12, 12 cells a second and how the fur moves, and how the wind's blowing, and it's, it, it's, it's just, that's why I think all directors should be animators first. Because you really can take the imagination and become something tangible. It's, it's, it's you know, just something you can hold in your hand. You can say, can you see this? No? Well, I can. You know, and then you make that. Make that happen. But I think, you know, those Bits of Revenge of the Sith are the closest we'll ever get to pretty much what would a Steven Spielberg Star Wars movie be like. Because it does seem like at this point, I mean, they're too, they're too good of buddies. I don't think Steven would feel right making a Star Wars movie for Disney without Lucas around, I don't think. But, you know, you say that, but then they just announced that Indiana Jones 5 is now coming out in like 2021. But the Indiana Jones is their baby together, not Lucas's baby. I would say I wonder with that too that Lucas not being involved is was Lucas's idea, not them not inviting him. Spielberg may not even feel like he needs to do directly do a Star Wars movie for Disney because he still kind of got his fingers in what's going on there, anyways. When when the sale to Disney happened, you know, and they put into motion the all important Force Awakens. Probably the most important movie, the whole Disney sale, the one that's going to get this whole thing going. And Spielberg's on the phone with his old friend, Kathleen Kennedy, and they're talking about who's going to direct episode seven. Spielberg brings up J.J. Abrams and supposedly Kathy Kennedy. It was like, do you think that could happen? So Spielberg calls up J.J. And says, would you do it if it was offered to you? He said, I would, but my wife wouldn't let me because she doesn't want me to restart any more franchises. (laughs) But so then Spielberg goes to Kathy and he says, if I could get J.J. to say yes, would you consider it? Kathy said, are you kidding? Of course I would. But why would J.J. do Star Wars? He's already done Mission Impossible and Star Trek. So Spielberg takes J.J. and his wife, Katie, out to dinner that very night with him and Kate Capshaw. And right in front of everybody, Spielberg says he popped the question. Is there any chance J.J. could direct Star Wars? What would you think of that? And Katie turned to J.J. and said, that would be amazing. Really? Spielberg says then he goes outside the restaurant, picks up his phone, calls Kathy Kennedy, and says, when can we meet with J.J.? And that's how the whole thing got started. So it's dirty fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so really, The Force Awakens... What we have in that movie, everything we've been given, Ray, Kylo Ren, the whole story. Would it have happened without Steven Spielberg? But probably not. But you would think that would be the end of the Spielberg influence. But no, Spielberg is at a bar mitzvah where this video plays where the the girl whose bar mitzvah it is, she got her friends that make like these goofy videos that she really likes, like to make a video for her bar mitzvah. And one of the actors that's in these goofy videos that her friends like is a young Alden Ehrenreich. Spielberg sees his goofy video and is like, that kid's got something. 
calls up Alden Ehrenreich, has him come in for a meeting at DreamWorks. Spielberg's developing the script for Bridge of Spies, which he's going to direct from the Coen brothers. Coen brothers go on to direct Alden Ehrenreich in Hail Caesar. Alden Ehrenreich goes on to, of course, as we know, play the young Han Solo, much to Spielberg's recommendation to his old friend, Kathy Kennedy. So it's crazy how much the Spielberg influence, you know what, it, it's like a spider web. Steven Spielberg <laughs> is a spider that's got this big web that's connecting all these little very important bits of Star Wars. And we didn't even mention in Clone Wars that the start of season four in the dynamic episode Water War, there's the shark jet, the, the, the shark alien, Riff Tamsin, who dies just like the shark in Jaws. We didn't even mention that Ezra's backstory was inspired by Empire of the Sun. And another uh, person close to Star Wars, Michael Giacchino, was brought into the movie world from Spielberg because he was working on the video game for The Lost World. Steven Spielberg called him up and suggested that he did the music with a live orchestra which made The Lost World become one of the first games to boast an original live orchestra score and kind of opened the door of from his transition from video games into films, who ultimately ended up scoring, what, Star Tours stuff and a little movie called Rogue One. And we're still holding on to that dream that Michael Giacchino is going to eventually be the John Williams replacement. But. So, yeah, another uh, another little fly stuck in Spielberg's web. And fed to Star Wars. Well, and it's the interesting thing with all of this, that the people like the J.J. Abrams and the Ryan Johnsons and the Gareth Edwards are all the people that were influenced by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg while they were growing up. And now they're the people making the new Star Wars movies. So even without the direct or indirect influence of Steven Spielberg, because honestly, who knows how much when Kathy Kennedy needs to make decisions on her movies and she brings people into like the Disney lot screening room, you'd have to think one of the people she's going to call is Steven Spielberg. Like his influence now is almost more double because he could be watching rough cuts of these movies offering advice on top of these directors who already have the Spielberg way is just part of the way they've grown up thinking how to make movies. Yeah. Spielberg's, you got Lucas, you got Williams, you got Ben Burt, and then you have the force ghost of Spielberg in the background making the Star Wars magic happen. George has a vision. There are filmmakers down through history like Capra and John Ford, and they made John Ford pictures and Frank Capra pictures, and, and they made and Hitchcock made Hitchcock films, and George Lucas made, makes George Lucas pictures. Luke Skywalker is on a daring mission to rescue a beautiful princess, and all he needs is a little help from his friends. Han Solo, space pirate, and Chewie, his giant whoopee, C-3PO, human relations cyborg, and his counterpart R2-D2, and the mysterious Jedi Knight. Never before in the history of movies has so much time and technology been spent just for fun. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested.
right, so iTunes reviews. Let's get caught up. We got three to get through. That's so awesome that people have left for us. And our first one is from Bub MJF. Bub Jim Bub Mimjif? Bub Mimjif. Bub Mimjif. Bub Mimjif writes, you guys are great. Could you do more episodes on droids? There are tons of cool bits on different droids. Like the RA-7 Death Star droids have hidden surveillance equipment in them to find disloyal Imperial officers so they can be punished. Well, Bub, MFJ, Bub Majif, um, to answer your question, yes, we could do more episodes on droids. And this this could be one of my favorite reviews we've ever gotten. It's a good one. It just makes me think of the uh, certain point of view story, too, that was from the the mouse droid's point of view, and that half the story was just written in code, computer code. Woo! That was a tough one. That was a good one. <laughs> but yeah, we, I think we, like a, a droids episode on different classes and versions of droids and just a droids, not the cartoon droids, but just droids in general. It's been like on our list for a long time, and we'll get to it eventually. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. So next we have uh, Drink the Blue Milk by Aiden. And it says, I first fell in love with Star Wars as a kid in Michigan, thrilling to the adventures of Dash Rendar and Talon Card. Hearing Jason and Gabe talk about Star Wars, breaking down the newest developments and laughing about the strange Star Wars of the past brings me right back to that childhood feeling. Star Wars fandom has gotten really weird, and I love that these two Michiganders can still find the fun in our favorite galaxy. <laughs> Thank you, Aiden. Yeah, I think there's, some, there's something in that, that Michigan water back in... 80s and 90s where Dash Randar and Talon Card. <laughs> and our last one is from Kurtisawa. And Kurtisawa writes, I love this podcast. Gabe and Jason go deep into Star Wars. All Star Wars. Canon, Legends, Holiday Special, Miko Disco albums. I'm disappointed with the negativity in Star Wars fandom right now, but there is none of that here. They keep it positive and fun. There is no other podcast that is this much fun. The Facebook group says it all. Chill. Also, if you like me and love Kiss, these guys are making a podcast just for you. I cannot recommend this podcast highly enough. Well, thank you, Kurtisawa. And I like to sprinkle a little bit of the Kiss in there from time to time. Can't not give Star Wars a little kiss when, it's, when there's, that, there's so much love to go around. That's how you save what you love by giving it a little kiss. Well, thank you, Kurtisawa. Thank you, Aiden. And thank you, Bub Majif, for those great reviews. And we can read your outstanding iTunes review and an upcoming episode. All you got to do is head over there after you're done listening, write a little something and we'll do it. We'll read it on a show coming up. Thank you. 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 Hi, J.J. Abrams here. On behalf of the entire cast and crew of Star Wars Episode Seven, thank you.
And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. out on blastpointspodcast.com you can listen to the theme music you can get recipes you can see comics you can find old episodes all kinds of stuff and then check us out on instagram twitter and facebook and like kurtisawa says you can join the chill group and chill out with some other star wars crazies and talk about all the good stuff on facebook and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you never ever miss an upcoming episode and help us out spread the word tell the peeps they gotta listen to blast points because we got a lot of cool stuff coming up in the next couple months some neat stuff headed your way and you don't want to miss any of it that about wraps up episode number 131 here the spielberg connection you'll never look at steven spielberg the same way again you'll never look at his fingers where have they been? You, if you look under his nails, you can see they're just full of Star Wars. That's why you never see his fingertips. He's always wearing gloves. Mm-hmm. His hands are always in his pockets, so you don't see all that Star Wars. But we'll be back next week with some more fun. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. loves getting older, George. But when you leave behind a legacy of imagination that has actually changed our culture for the better and for generations to come, we can only look forward to your future with enthusiasm, wonder, and gratitude for keeping the child inside all of us from growing old. You have done more for the collective consciousness of this planet than you will ever know or ever really need to know. Because what I'm saying is, all we want to say is keep on doing what you're doing, and the world will continue to thank you. <laughs>